0: thanks for the download thanks for the stream but mostly thanks for tuning in to coming up next the podcast uh and a big thank you to my guest last week if you haven't listened to it uh, I was lucky enough to interview Philip Noyce, the legendary Australian director uh, at his Sydney home um, towards the tail end of last year, just after he'd won uh, or been awarded the, uh, the Actor Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, I would highly recommend that you go to comingupnext.com.au, subscribe to the show first, and that way you'll never miss an episode. And uh, then once you've done that, go to last week's episode and check it out. Dave Hearn is my guest this week. Dave is part of an English theatre company called Mischief Theatre, which they started in 2008. Uh, Dave... Uh, Together they have... Together they've created some of the uh, more iconic comedy shows that have, uh, that have been on the West End in recent years. Most notably, The Play That Goes Wrong, which is now uh, all over the world. Dave has had uh, quite an incredible career to date and has just a tremendous story uh, about you know creating this show from nothing to it becoming one of the biggest shows on the West End, playing on Broadway uh, and being produced by J.J. Abrams. Of all people we get into that we talk about uh, all the usual philosophical stuff uh, my guest for episode 142 of coming up next Dave Hearn <music> It's what now 10 years since Mischief Theatre, yeah. Were we in 2000,
1: yeah. So we went to Lambda in 2007, graduated in 2008, I think. So, yeah, 10 years, yeah. Wow. Um, the first show we did was a show called Let's See What Happens in Edinburgh, I think that was 2008 or 2009. I think it was 2008, and that was car crash, but yeah. it was fun. And uh, yeah, so yeah, it's 10, 10 years. So it's weird because I've sort of known people like Henry Lewis, for example, who's the artistic director. I've known him for longer than I've pretty much known anyone else apart from my own family. So I'm getting to that age now where like I have like long term friends.
0: Yeah. Which is really weird. Yeah, that is that is quite funny. Yeah. I have a friend, I think my longest running friendships are like thirty years or something. Wow, yeah. Um and they're now having uh kids and families and I'm making podcasts and Yeah, it's
1: scary, isn't it, when
0: that happens and you
1: start start seeing pictures of people getting married and you're just like, Oh no, should I be doing that?
0: Yeah. Yeah yeah do you kind of feel that with uh with the work that you've been doing over the last sort of 10 years being that it has i guess taken you you know around the uk Mm. um around europe and i guess in the last couple of years over to broadway as well yeah do you feel as though you know committing to a relationship or that kind of part of your life has been neglected that's a good question actually i think uh I guess the short answer
1: is no. I don't feel that. I'm in a long-term relationship at the moment. Uh, we've been together for, I think, six years, maybe seven years. Feels feels like a long time. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's really, um, yeah, it's really easy to worry about that kind of stuff, I think, especially with social media. And it's really easy to try and project an image of yourself that kind of fits into the kind of construction of, of what you're supposed to be doing by the time you hit 30 for example but I think yeah if you're happy if one is happy if I'm happy doing these shows then I think that's surely a positive thing you know i think if i want to get married and go and have a kid um so for example nancy she's um a long-term member of, of mischief and she plays annie and lot various lots of other characters in the shows and she's married and she's starting a family and there's nothing stopping her from doing that and she's still heavily involved in the company and still heavily involved in the shows obviously to a point like with the the danger of the shows uh, for example but yeah I think you can feel like you miss out on stuff like that but it's just whatever you as an individual prioritise is important I think we've always had such a good time and I actually had a weird experience the other day the boys the writers have been off in Vegas uh, writing a new show um, with some other people and um, it's not really a, a mischief project but it's sort of associated with us and I hadn't seen him for a while, and Henry Shields came back uh, for some leaving drinks for one of our other guys. And uh, I, I just had, I had there was loads of people I hadn't seen for ages, and I hadn't seen Henry Shields for like two weeks, and I just had such a lovely time talking to him. And I realised I was really happy with this group of friends and engaging with them. And you can worry about the type of person that you are or what people think of you. But in that moment I realised, I was like, oh, I've got some really cool friends and they make me laugh and they make me happy and I like just sitting here talking to them. And so you don't feel that like you've missed out in that respect, I think.
0: Yeah. You know, you guys have um, created some of the most successful contemporary theatre on the West End, uh, certainly in the in the comedy space. You know, you mm. won the Olivier Award a few years ago. Yeah, um, I did, yeah. for best new comedy for the play that goes wrong you, mm. you know performed on television um on broadway in the last year or so as well um but i wonder if you remember the first time that you did perform whether it was comedy or straight theater or whatever growing up you grew up in uh, essex yeah yes that's right
1: yeah yeah first thing i did so i reckon like my first proper proper memory of performance because I didn't, I didn't actually want to be an actor until I was about 17. But I did a show like in primary school. I think they did Alice in Wonderland. And I was the six of clubs. Right. Uh, I imagine I nailed it. Yeah. Uh, that was fun. Like a chorus thing. And then I think I played the Ghost of Christmas Future. Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come in Scrooge. Again, primary school. And I think I had all my lines cut. Because I kept messing around, so they cut all my lines, uh, (laughs) and I just had to point and wear like a hood. And then I was quite shy and quite quiet as a kid, and then I started playing rugby, and I kind of came out of my shell a little bit, and I was in secondary school. And I decided to take GCSE drama instead of IT, which arguably was a bad career move because, you know, IT is much more lucrative. (laughs) But uh, it's worked out, I think, now. Yeah. And I did it because I wanted to kind of gain confidence and I thought that that drama would kind of provide that. And I kind of enjoyed doing it and I remember thinking about uh, being funny. And so yeah, maybe, yeah, I think you're right actually, I think probably I did always focus on comedy slightly, because I think I was always told I was funny, and so it's kind of hard to believe yourself to be funny unless you're told it. And I grew up in quite a rough area as well, so there was a, we always used to joke about um, you either learn how to fight or be funny, and often I would try and be funny and that would get me into fights, uh, and so um, I, uh, was not, I was not good at either of them really. Right. Um But then I remember really enjoying doing drama, and I got it was the only GCC I got an A star in. Uh, Everything else I got like Bs and Cs and stuff. I'm I'm nature's B student. I pick things up very quickly. I'm slightly above average, but I'm never the best. And so, yeah, I was like, oh wow, I must have really enjoyed that. I must have really kind of like lent myself to it. And so I think the first ever show show I did that wasn't part of theatre, I wasn't part of education or um, part of drama was at the Harlow Playhouse when I did Stags and Hens and that I guess is a comedy and it's quite a simple play for for young people to do and I have a video of it somewhere and I remember watching it about a year ago and it was it was bad but it was a good show and we were doing really well but we were just very young um but I think I always thought of myself as a straight actor if I'm honest and that's probably why I ended up moving towards comedy because you're trying to take yourself very seriously and then you end up looking like a fool.
0: What was your uh, what was your house like growing up? Was it like very kind of jokey, or was it almost the other sort of direction?
1: Um, I don't know. It wasn't jokey. Like my my family are very um, very very easygoing. Like my mum is very easygoing. She's quite a tense woman, uh, but she's very easygoing, and she loves and hates in the same. With the same speed and with the same ferocity kind of thing so uh she will she will meet you and immediately love you and welcome you into the home but if you do if you upset one of her kids basically in in the same speed at which you were accepted, you will be denied uh and so that's quite a powerful thing to grow up with and My mum was very much the kind of leading figure in the in the house, and still is. um and my sister she had a bit of a funny funny one when she was younger went off the rails a little bit but then now she's a doctor of biomedical science oh wow Uh, yeah she's properly clever um she's got a phd and my dad's a hematologist so he works in like the labs and stuff on the on blood and and stuff like that and my mum's um she used to be a cardiac nurse she was a matron um so she was but she started nursing cadet training when she was 16 and Mm. then um like rose through the ranks and then went to open university when she was about 40. And so that she's a real kind of success story of, um, what you can do if you apply yourself. And she's quite an amazing woman. Really? Both my parents are They're They're they're, But that, I wouldn't say, I don't know. I wouldn't say they're like funny people. They are, <clears throat> they are funny. I find them funny, but I kind of laugh at them more than with it. I think, <laughs> uh, sounds like a very scientific, Yes, house very um, very biological. But they always encouraged me to go for whatever it was that I wanted to do. So nothing was impossible um, until you decided that it wasn't. Uh, and so they always supported me. And actually for, for me to go to Lambda and do the foundation course, um, I think they sold one of their cars. We moved house to a, to a ch- cheaper place um, so they could afford to, to send me there. We applied for funding and stuff like that, but inevitably you don't really ever get it. So incredibly supportive, and they were very supportive of my sister as well. She, she was in education until she was 29, 30. And so, yeah, it was that kind of encouragement. But I think it was drama school and both Lambda and Rose Bruford and kind of working with other people that I realised that I was moving more towards comedy rather than, like, growing up with it, for example.
0: Yeah. There's something, uh, I guess, inspiring about people laughing Mm. Uh, i'm gonna say at you but not at you but like at something that you've created yeah. like a moment that you've created or or, sure, or that yeah, you've yeah. inspired and i guess with all of the goes wrong kind of uh, productions that you guys have done you've really kind of nailed a scientific element of uh of comedy in a sense yeah i guess it's true yeah
1: i think um I think it's, uh, yeah, I'm not afraid to say people are laughing at you, I think. I think uh, it was Rob, who originally played Trevor in Play That Goes Wrong, he said something that I, I really think is true, actually. He was like, after every performance of The Play That Goes Wrong, as an actor, you should be a little bit upset and a little bit hurt. Because <laughs> you should, in every scenario, genuinely be trying to do a love scene or, or try and do a really cool fight scene. And there, sh- there should be a part of you that's actually trying. Um, and when the audience laugh at you, you know it's within the context of a comedy show, uh, but you should secretly have a moment to yourself, and you're like, "Oh, that's a shame." Yeah, you should try not to make them laugh, and you should try and uh, encourage them to buy into the scene um, by playing the truth
0: of exactly, yeah, yeah. Here.
1: And I think, um, and I think that's true. I think certainly with with the play that goes wrong, I think the we you can see the progression of of us as people, and the writers and the maturity of the writing as it goes on. Some of the jokes still are very juvenile and not clever at all. It's just like we'll be we'll we'll be looking at a scene and then someone will go, "Oh, we need we just need a joke here." And it's like, "Great, I'll just walk into that table and it'll just be a little moment and it's done." Um, but you see, the play that goes wrong is, is probably a joke every five to ten seconds, and there's just it's just a machine gun of different gags that are now carefully choreographed and the timing so, so that you say, as you say scientific. And I think if you isolated the final twenty minutes of the show. On its own, it's probably not very funny, but because you've whipped everyone up so much, they're just laughing at anything. And somebody comes in and walks into a door, and everybody's going mad, and it's really fun. But yeah, I think there is a there is. I guess I, I'm, I would be cautious of saying there is a science behind comedy, but I think there is a rhythm that you can generate that that the most most people will laugh at and most people will get. And I think that's why farces tend to be quite successful because of the the speed at the end. But then some people don't like them because, you know, they're too, they can be quite messy if they're not done right. Um, but yeah, I think we've kind of unlocked a psychology. I think which is that people—it's not that people like to watch other people fail. I think people like to watch other people try and fail, and I think that's um, that's something we just tap into, and we've milked it for all <laughs> it's worth. I don't know if there are any more goes wrong shows in the bank. No. I don't know if we could do another one. I don't know what else there is to go wrong. Um, yeah, because we did we did a magic show that goes wrong years ago, um, and then we did the nativity goes wrong, which you can buy the script on I think on Amazon. It's like an hour long show, so there are those that aren't haven't been like commercialised, but yeah, there's only so much stuff that can go wrong before you run out of material. <laughs> yeah, before you know things I mean? start working. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: you don't get people like just coming up to you and suggesting various things that go wrong all the time. Right? All the
1: time. Yeah, yeah. I get I run the um, the email account. At, uh, mischief. Well, I don't run it, but I I sort of get emails and respond when I can. Curated. Yeah, yeah, that's a good word for it. To <laughs> it. Uh, and uh, yeah, you will get people that email in. Um, some that some of the ideas are ideas that we've tried before, and are n- not in there for good reason. There are some things where you're just, you think, oh, okay, great, thanks for your enthusiasm, but you've you slightly missed the point of mm. the show. Um, and then there are ideas for other other types of goes wrong shows you can do and i think um it's hard because i think people have a personal uh background with like you know a certain genre or a certain film and then people say oh you should do this film goes wrong and it's to say like, okay but that doesn't have like a commercial appeal it's just you really like, like that Susan film the film Kane* goes wrong yeah and you would like to see it and it's it's sort of based on the the knowledge you you have to create an inclusive environment, I think with, yeah. with especially with comedy unless you're uh, like actively choosing not to do that, which is also a legitimate way of doing it I think um, but that 's why I think Peter Pan works because even if you don 't know the intricacies of jm barry 's original story, you kind of get what Peter Pan mm. is um, the play that goes wrong works because you kind of get what a murder mystery is supposed to be, and I think um it's it's the goes wrong thing exists in that premise because on the assumption that the audience know what each moment is supposed to be there's a big sword fight in the play that goes wrong it's clear that that is meant to be a fight that happens and then when it doesn't happen you get why it's funny but if you do something very niche that people don't understand and then you subvert it then it it becomes very you're relying on the audience to know too much already before you've even done the scene and yeah. that's, that's not very inclusive I think um the most popular suggestion though is strictly come dancing goes wrong. And I do, I don't know how much scope there is in that. You know what I mean? I think like there's only so much sort of dancing that you get wrong before it's like maybe there's a good sketch in it rather than a
0: yeah, a whole play. It doesn't seem like a sort of 2-hour adventure.
1: Yeah, with you know with an interval. I mean I suppose you could write a play based on a, a kind of dance competition. But you would just have a lot of dances that go wrong. But then you're again relying on the audience knowing what a waltz is supposed to look like in order to, to make it go wrong. But then maybe there's a funny gag in the waltz is like done in three beats but one of the actors is on four beats. And you could just do a very clever sequence <laughs> where you it
0: would it would take months
1: to choreograph, but you could yeah. do it, yeah.
0: And again relying on the audience understanding the time signature of yeah. the dance routine. Exactly, yeah, yeah.
1: And I think it's um it's making sure that I think the rule is that we have is that if we if we find it funny, we should try it. If if it, enough of us find it funny enough of us laugh, we should try it because you've never really any idea of how stuff is going to go down until you put it in front of an audience. And I've already said always said that like whatever. Whatever director, whatever team, whatever crew you have doesn't really matter. The audience are always the best directors because they'll tell you when stuff isn't funny and you'll feel it as well from them. And different audiences react differently on different nights. But I think, um, yeah, if you if you try a new joke, you'll know very quickly whether or not it's funny. Because mm. the audience will tell
0: you. Totally. So you finish school and you go to Lambda in 2007.
1: 2007. I want to say 2008. Let's say
0: 2008. 2008. Yeah. Right, let's say 2008. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you meet... These, You know, all these people who Mm. you start collaborating with. What what was the kind of process of beginning the collaboration even before you decided to name it Mischief Theatre? So, uh, I'll let you in on a secret,
1: actually. The company was originally called The Scat Pack um, because it was to do with improvisational jazz. And it was an improv company, but obviously, Scat sadly has uh, other connotations, shitty connotations, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, we um, we we changed the name after about two or three years, maybe. And I I sort of knew this before, and I sort of mentioned it. And then we we decided as a collective that it wouldn't be a problem. And then it kind of wasn't. But then like you get the odd comment here and there, and you got like t-shirts and posters and stuff, and suddenly you're like. People are like, what is this? And you're like, okay, let's just change the name. (laughs) Um, But it all started really with, um, so there's two people. There's one guy called Adam Aguido, who is, he runs Showstoppers and um, he does loads of other, loads of improv shows. He's just ran the 50-hour Improvathon that was on uh, uh, Stockwell where they do, uh, I did a, a, a seven or eight hour stint Um, and they do they just improvise for 50 hours straight and he was teaching us improv at Lambda and Henry Lewis artistic director of Mischief Theatre is an amazing man he's obsessed with with doing projects and starting new things and he doesn't ever limit himself to anything and he I think he he has this just this belief that you could just get stuff done if you if you just start doing it um which I really admire and I think um he wanted to start an improv company and he asked a few people that he thought were good improvisers in the year Uh, and one of them was me and I I said yes Um, and I think from that original company there's me, Josh, Henry Lewis, Mike Bodie and Harry are the five kind of original ones from Lambda but everybody else kind of joined six months later or very soon after yeah and he said do you want to come and rehearse every Saturday and do improv stuff and practice these things that Adam had been teaching us and so we started doing it we put in a bit of money like a few hundred pounds each which at the time was like our life savings and we put on a few shows and it was mostly friends and family and our parents kind of supported us and we were very lucky in that some of the other students at Lambda were from slightly wealthier backgrounds so they could put in a little bit more money and we just did shows in small venues around London and tried to take a show to Edinburgh and funded it all ourselves, lost huge amounts of money and tried to like spent the rest of the year working in restaurants and stuff to kind of build up enough funds to go and do it again and that's kind of how it started really um, we just built from sort of 25 seater venues to 50 seater venues to 100 to 200 over sort of we were in Edinburgh for maybe 6 or 7 years before the play that goes wrong kind of took off
0: It's funny that uh, you know, the kind of further I get into my career as a filmmaker, the more you kind of realise that it really is just about taking such kind of incremental steps. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah. there's... The idea of an overnight success is such a myth. Mm. Um,
1: yeah, I think there's always on um, on shows like, uh, I don't know, maybe it's like Jonathan Ross or like Graham Norton and stuff like that, you always have these actors on there who have been in a film or whatever and they're suddenly playing alongside Tom Cruise or whatever and it's great for them and it's, they're, they're really successful and I can't remember who it was but I remember I think it was on Jonathan Ross show he was interviewing a woman and he was like you know obviously you've just come out of nowhere and you're doing this big film and everyone's it's really great and you've been nominated for like all these awards and stuff and I think she won an award for best newcomer and she was like yeah it's strange because I've been a professional actor for nearly 10 years now and she, she's been, she been the lead at shows at the national and at the donmar and had done lots of other films and had small parts in it and had made a really successful career out of being an actor but suddenly this unknown actress has come out of nowhere and sort of taken the world by storm and you're right it is those incremental steps where she probably started as you know a chorus part without any lines in a fringe show 10 mm. years before
0: and kind of worked her way out And also, I think backing yourself, you know, like you say, you guys were funding your own shows at a loss just Mm. to, you know, be in the right spaces to be probably not even to be in the right spaces just because it was what you wanted to do. Yeah,
1: I think that's that's very true. And I think if you some some people are very lucky that they can afford to do that. I think we sort of sat in between luck and not luck. I think we could we believed we could afford to do it, but we couldn't. (laughs) And there was great kind of sacrifice from a sort of communal and a personal level from everyone, I think, to get where we got to. Um, I think we, the first Edinburgh where we did Let's See What Happens, which was an improvised play, we lost money. But we individually paid, well, collectively, we paid for like the accommodation and stuff like that. And then the next year we made the money back that we'd lost and made maybe thousand pounds or something like that but it was always enough to take us back to edinburgh the next year and then the next year maybe i think we made like three thousand pounds profit or whatever and then the next year four and five and you kind of build that way until we never really discussed paying ourselves i think that was the thing um but me and Jono, who's the company director he um we used to have this sort of running joke uh when we were doing play that goes wrong at uh the old red lion so we did two runs at the old red lion then it got transferred to trafalgar and then we did an extended run then edinburgh and then we started the uk tour in january and he always used to say oh it's just one more push one final push uh so we did this old red lion run and we lost money and we sort of paid ourselves a bit and, it and that's was, a pub in
0: in uh in london yes
1: in in angel yeah and it's um it's theater it's Yes, a theatre above a pub. Uh, and so you often had to contend with crowds downstairs if there was football on. Um, yeah, right. There was a dog who, who lived there who used to bark throughout the <laughs> performance, um, which is incidentally where I think the Winston gag came from about the dog, it came from that actual real dog. And so, yeah, he kept saying it's one last push. And I, I was always used to joke, He'd be like you say that every time, mate, you say that every time, and then we we come back and we do it again and we don't pay ourselves. And it got by the time it got to Trafalgar Studios... Um, we were doing two shows a night because Trafalgar Studios is great but it's very expensive and we only had a 100-seater venue and in order to make your money back you have to kind of sell out and sell those tickets at 30, 35 quid which is a lot for a studio theatre and a lot for an hour-long show. So we'd started doing two shows a night. We did one at 7.45 and one at 9.15. So we turned our 100-seater into a 200-seater which means we could kind of half the ticket price and try and sell out. But obviously, what that meant was I. So I would get up at about five am every morning and go and work in a restaurant from about seven till till about five six at night, and then have lunch and dinner there and stuff. And they were really good, and they would the chefs would make us food. Uh, and then I would leave there and I would go to the theatre, and then we would do these two shows. But we didn't have a tech team, so um, Rob, who who played Trevor, was actually operating the show, and he the part of Trevor was was created by him as actual techie, teching the show. Of necessity. Yeah, and uh, the speech that he does at the start was a speech that we used to have to give to the audience because when the flats fall at the end, they genuinely fell so close to the audience that we had to tell them to keep their feet um, away from the stage um, because they were kind of sat on stage level. And then he would improvise and chuck in a few bits and pieces there. And the opening of The play that Goes Wrong on the West End with... um, then putting up the mantelpiece and doing stuff was usually because we would, we only had one set and we would break it quite a lot because we would smash each other into it. And it wasn't really built for purpose. Um, so me and Henry Lewis would usually repair the set whilst the audience were coming in. Cause we had a six minute turnaround to get the audience out and the new, new audience in. So we were all repairing stuff and repainting stuff in character, uh, but it was, wasn't part of the show. It was necessary repairs <laughs> so that we could do the show. Um, and by the end of it, it was being held together by various screws and gaffer tape and stuff. And so, yeah, we were doing that. So, I was we sort of doing, I'd get home at like, get home and get to bed at maybe midnight, and then up at five again the next day. And so you're kind of doing these 19, 20 hour days. And that went on for about six to eight weeks. And then my days off from the restaurant would be Thursday and Saturday. But then, of course, we would have the matinee performances. So we would be doing three shows that day. And then our day off from the show would be a Sunday. But I'd do a double shift, like a 14, hour shift at the restaurant. So I worked out. that I didn't get a day off, even Christmas Day. I worked on Christmas Day for about two and a half years. Wow. And so you kind of, that's the kind of level of, work that I was doing it wasn't just me other people working in call centers and doing various other jobs and I remember I I was like a millimeter off breaking point with Jono like with this kind of joke running joke we had one last push I said say that every time and uh we got to our extended run at Traff and I was like I think I'd like lo- lost like a lot of weight because we were just you, you do have time when do you eat like that kind of thing and you don't have any money as well and i think i smoked at the time so that was probably didn't help um and uh yeah and i was just like once we come back from edinburgh i'm gonna find another job i don't think i can be an actor anymore like i love it i love doing this show but we've been going now for like three years since leaving drama school um i sort of got an agent sort of didn't have an agent wasn't really getting any work um and as much as i love doing the odd gig here and there and doing these little runs like you can't sustain a lifestyle like that unless you have a, a source of money that is that you don't have to work for that you just have and people can give you um and john was just like yeah i know i think though it's something's going to happen it's going to change and um rob knew a guy called mark and mark knew a guy called kenny and those are our producers and they came in to see the show um and they wanted to take it on a, on a UK tour. Uh, we'd have to write a second act and make the show two hours long because that's how touring venues make their money with bar sales in the interval. And we talked about it and we we finished Edinburgh and we did Peter Pan Goes Wrong at the Pleasance. And then uh, we had a three-week tour booked in, in January of I think 2014 maybe. Uh, and that three-week tour turned into a 26-week tour and then it kind of sold out and it got transferred to the West End and then we were like, oh, okay, cool, we're, we're West End actors. And I got paid more money than I'd ever been paid in my life. And then that finished and we, we did uh, Peter Pan and Bank Robbery and all of those things just started to happen because the writers had time to write during the day because they weren't working in restaurants. And we had time to workshop new shows and come up with new ideas. And so the big changing point for us was uh, Kenny and Mark Kitty Wax and Mark Bentley's kindness of coming to see the show of actually coming to see it but also our hard work for our just relentless nature of 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 um just keeping going and I think, uh, not a lot of people know this actually, but I went to see a doctor after that run and I was diagnosed with clinical fatigue, right. uh, which I didn't know was a thing. Uh, and I said to the doctor, I was like, what is that? And he was like, basically, you're just really tired. <laughs> um, and I was just uh, like, okay. Because I thought, I, I must, there must be something wrong with me. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm so tired, I'm so ill, I'm not myself. Um, I'm, you know, all of these things. And he was like, you're not eating or sleeping or drinking properly um, and stop smoking. And so... Uh, and so, yeah, that's the kind of, like, toll that it took on me. But it wasn't just that's my story. But, like, other people in, in the company have similar similar narratives. And so I think that's the that's scary. That's the level of commitment that it took to get us where we are. And that's where it started. And now it's really easy because we have royalties, profit share, and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And so it's great fun. Yeah. But I think I always think that when I speak to actors or people, creative filmmakers and people who make podcasts or whatever, because it can be very disheartening, I think. And it won't happen for everyone. And that's a scary thing. That's a scary thing to see. It just easily could have... I could tell the story up to that point and then be like, and then nothing happened. And we had this play that goes wrong. which is our show that we always talked about, but it never went anywhere. And so I think... And I could have quite easily got another job doing something else had those people not come in. And I think it's scary because often the trajectory of your career path is often decided by somebody else. And I think that's the you have control up to a point. And once you kind of release that control and kind of go, okay, cool. So I can only ever do as much as I believe that I can do. And then once I've exhausted that, it's up to other people. Because you can make a podcast, but it's up to people to listen to it or it's up to, I don't know how it works, like a channel to take it on or whatever. And I think, um, And I think that's a really scary prospect for a lot of people. And I think that's what gets people in the end in terms of acting and creative jobs is mm. that you... You rely so heavily on, on other people to open doors for you.
0: Well, I think it depends. A lot of that sort of comes down to how you define success or how you kind mm. of what, what your benchmarks are in terms of what it means to quote unquote make it or um, yeah. you know create sustainability for yourself. And I think that there's something to be said for having that kind of tenacious grit that you know you talk mm. about, where you're like. I'm just I'm I'm devoted to this. I'm dedicated to making this happen and that means that I'm gonna get four hours of sleep a night. You probably I mean, you're not even really consciously making the decision, I guess, at that time. Yeah. You're just doing what needs to be done to get things done.
1: Yeah. It's very true. I think as well, like to, to also to be clear that I don't think um I think it's important that the, the opposite is true, is that if you are not finding success or if you are um whatever your perception of, of making it is or, or or uh success and failure is is that it's really important for people to to understand that it's not because they are not trying hard enough. I think that's a big problem in in a creative environment in, in in acting and in creative jobs this This notion that you don't want it enough or and I think it's the x factor in the voice and all of those horrible shows that people kind of go on and showcase themselves and the judges just say things like you've got it because you want it, you want it more than she does, or he wanted it more than you.' Of course everybody wants it. And it's just this idea that if you you wish hard enough or if you want it hard enough, then you'll get it. And if you didn't get it, it's because you didn't try hard enough. Rather than accepting that lots of things are out of your control. And you can only work and try as hard as you... As long as you go home at the end of every day being like, yeah, no, I gave everything today. And I'm unwilling to give any more and I'm happy with that. I think that some people can get hung up on it of just being like, why, why isn't it working for me? Is it because I because I don't try hard enough? But I think every like, of course you do if you care about it, and if you feel that you're not trying hard enough, then maybe it's not not the thing for you. Mm. Maybe something else will inspire you more.
0: And I think the shows, the sort of shows that you mentioned, uh, by and large, look. I haven't watched any for a long time, but they're, just, um, they're very similar. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, those are kind of like the. People who want that overnight success ticket, Mm. I'm imagining uh, by and large the sort of people that will go on those shows or try to uh, make their career or use that as a springboard for their career. I'm not saying the people who go on them aren't necessarily talented or don't work hard. Mm. I'm sure there are a lot of people who do and are both of those things. But I think there are probably a lot of people that go into that environment going, I'm going to be found here or I'm going to be discovered. And I think that yeah. the, the whole notion of that is disempowering to creative people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, um, that, like you say, it's your own version of success. And I think if you go into it with the notion that you are you are in control of being discovered or becoming famous, I think that can only serve to frustrate you because... Because I think that ultimately if you go into you go on a show like X Factor and you go, Great, I'm gonna use this as an opportunity to show everyone that how good I am at singing and I, I wanna be a pop star, that's my dream. So I'm gonna go in and give everything I can and and work hard and not smoke and not drink and listen to my vocal coach and do all those kind of things and I don't know, listen to Simon Cowell's advice and all of those sorts of things. And if you do all of those things and you still don't make it, it's not because other people don't care, or because you haven't tried hard enough. It's just because so much is out of your control. And I think if you go into it with an attitude, you'll 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 ultimately be much happier experiencing it, and then understanding that failure is just a part of life. And I've sort of been, I've been overusing this phrase because I think I I think I made it up, but maybe it sounds better in my head than <laughs> it is in life. So I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said it was one of the actors in Bank Robbery. And she was like, uh, I had to go back in an emergency cover last week. I haven't done it for a year. just oh, kind no. of stepped back in and, and had a go. And it all went pretty well. Nobody died. And I remembered most of it. Um, and she said, uh, oh, how is it? Is it your level of experience of having done the show or acting? Uh, that means that it's easy for you to step back in. I said, well, first of all, it's not easy. I was still nervous because it's, it's still an important thing. And it's, it's also these new guys, it's their show. And I'm kind of coming in to patch over a crack that's that's happened and i said in terms of experience against other actors there are people in their 90s still performing who have been performing for longer than i've been alive and they're truly experienced but i said actually i think all that experience comes down to is just a familiarity with failure and i think the more that you fail as you as you perform and as you do things the more familiar you become with it and the less it bothers you and that enables you and that empowers you to make bolder choices in terms of acting or you're a writer in terms it makes you kind of go do you know what actually yeah i'm going to write that character in, or i'm going to do something crazy or you know you might decide to do a podcast on top of a mountain as a creative choice because you're you're not worried so much about failure and i think um i think that's that's a really important thing for those for those people that go on to x factor or go on to those kind of shows because like you say it's not because they're not working hard and it's not because people who write shows and create theater aren't working hard it's just Becoming familiar with with failing, and we we've failed a lot as a company, and we fail on a daily basis, and that's kind of the joy of it. Like ninety percent of what you do doesn't succeed; it's the ten percent that people see. So there's always this facade of um, facade of (laughs) of 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 a company that's successful, and of course, like that's how you want to appear because people want to come to things that they know are going to be successful. Behind it is hours and hours of writing, hours and hours of workshop arguments over characters. People coming up with new jokes, trying them, failing, feeling bad about it, you know. And so there's lots of... And then there's the whole story of how you get there anyway. So there's lots of kind of darkness behind the light. And I think that's... um, I think it's important for people to know that you will fail a lot before you succeed.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, not to sound a bit fucking esoteric, but you fail forward. So you're always like learning from your failures.
1: Yeah. And I think it's... um, there's there's like uh, it's a very american ideal i think of this idea of just like not giving up sometimes people give up because it's hard and like you know you want to have a kid and you don't want to be an actor getting paid 50 quid to do like a rehearsed reading at some theatre that you've never heard of and like that's fine and i think certainly there's a um, there's a thing i don't know if i'm right about this but i think there's a thing in the arts a perception of the arts from people who are not in the arts that if you if you give up it's hard because we're not being recorded on tv so (laughs) i'm I'm doing quotation marks at the moment yeah um (laughs) so uh, if you give up quotation marks um then you have you have failed and so if i said if i said um i want to become an ambulance driver or doctor or paramedic or whatever and after two years of training and giving it a go I say it wasn't for me. Everyone will kind of go, oh, that's a shame. What are you moving on to? But if I say I'm going to be an actor, everyone goes, oh, wow, that's hard. You know, it probably won't work out for you. After two years, it doesn't work out. And I go, I'm going to go and do something else. People are like, oh, you've given up on acting. Because it feels like a stupid thing to start to do. <laughs> yeah. And like it feels like a, a thing that is is a, is a dreamer's job. And, you know, and I thought that about, you know, I met someone who's like, I was a poet. And I was like, come on, you know, what was that? You can't be a poet like that's stupid but of course it's not stupid it's a job and it's it's creative and and i have no right to think that and i i i ended up talking to the guy about what he does and i was like oh right, well, yeah you do spend your days like writing and, and doing stuff and failing all the time and so um i think that's the perception that is that, that can be difficult for some people because i think in other jobs if you choose not to do them it's exciting. Wow, you're quitting your job to go do something else. How exciting. You're going to pursue your passion of being an actor. Exactly. But if you decide not to be an actor, it's like oh you failed, you've given up. And I think that's that's sometimes it's a driving force, but I think that's a hard thing for people to to accept. And I think at the end of the day if 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 the lifestyle of being an actor doesn't make you happy then you shouldn't pursue it. But also don't be Whenever I do like Q and A's and stuff, it's I keep using this word failure, but I think it's such an important one of of not being afraid of it, because I think that's what restricts you literally and moment by moment in your performance if you're if you're scared of failing, but also and a, 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 if you look at it on a much wider scale as a as a theatre company, if you're starting a comedy company, if you're scared of failing and it, not succeeding, then you you kind of don't have a drive to to start it in the first
0: place. Yeah, and I think. I think being afraid of failure is, is natural, but mm. to, to allow that to kind of block or hinder your progression or yeah. evolution is, um, well, I mean, it's, it's kind of pointless cause you'll never get anywhere really. Yeah. I think being afraid of it is, yeah, like you say, is
1: natural and often a good thing. You know, there are some things that we haven't even tried in shows because we're just like, that won't work. We're too scared. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, yeah, there are some stories of, you know, we've done shows to... We did an improv show to six people. And there was eight people in the cast. And, like, Jono came out before and said, hello, everyone, uh, we haven't started the show yet, but obviously we're not expecting any more people. Do you want us to do the show? And that's it. Those six people were like, yeah, absolutely, definitely. Please do a show for us. And we came out, we did our show, and they had a great time, and it was it was fun for those six people. Um, but you that was a real experience of failure, of... of you know it cost more to get us all into the theatre than it did for those six people to come I think those experiences are are important and you know we've done some shows where the houses have been packed especially improv stuff and they've gone down so badly and like you just go oh wow that was 300 people that are going to leave thinking that was a bad show and they're going to tell all their friends and those things are scary and uh, I think but yeah you become familiar with them and you you learn a new experience and you start to learn that you can't control what people think of the show. You can only try and do the best show that you can
0: possibly do. And
1: that's quite a freeing thing, I think.
0: And also when robots eventually take over all the jobs, the only mm. ones that will remain will be the artistic ones. So. I thought of this
1: about, like, what could you... If somebody created AI that was really intelligent, could you program it to be an actor? Could you program um, it... So that assuming the robot can't feel emotion, but yeah. it can... Uh, display it it can and it looks real it looks like a person displaying emotion because sometimes often I think when acting like you've done a show 200 times you're not really feeling it you're just good at doing it now (laughs) and I think um, I think yeah if you could create a robot would people would people still come and see it because the robot won't get tired and the robot won't change its performance you will see the the robot perform and then actually will, will the new artistic appreciation be in the programmer the robot you know like rather than having a good actor or a good director or a good writer you would have somebody would program a robot to give a performance and then at the end that program would come out and take a bow because he or she is the one who's who's done all of the artistic and the creative mm. work but
0: you you have a guaranteed this is like a the next level of puppetry
1: yeah I, I was just thinking like i mean in thousands of years would that be a thing and would people still go and see it would people see that show would they Knowing that it's a program, knowing that it gets turned on and off each night, but would you pay money to go and see something? But you also have the security of knowing that it's going to be good. It's going to be like millimeter perfect, and it's going to be the same every single time, and unless there's a power cut, there won't, won't ever be a problem. <laughs> but I think I don't know. I feel like that's that's kind of what TV offers when you see repeats of stuff. You know, I watched, i started rewatching Friends because it's on Netflix there's a security in that because I know what it is. It's like, it's comfort food. Mm. But then I go, if I go to the theater, there's a, there's a nervousness every time you watch because I don't know, like I'm trying to get tickets to see network, see Brian Cranston in it. And there'll be something really exciting about sitting in an audience and watching him walk out and be like, Oh, that's Walt Whitman. That's, that's, that's the guy from Malcolm in the Middle. Like, that's really cool. He's right there. And you know, he might forget a line. And that's really exciting. So I don't know, if you want to, if robots took over, if you'd want to take it away.
0: Break it down to that. Yeah. Yeah. So what was, uh, we've gone off on a huge... Um, robot tangent. Robot yeah. tangent. <laughs> uh, What was the kind of initial stage, you know, because uh, the play that goes wrong was um, was originally The Murder Before Christmas. Mm. And that was the third improv show that you guys had done. Collectively. The...
1: The third? No, that was the first
0: scripted. I oh, sorry, the it's the first scripted, scripted show. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: that's probably scripted one.
0: So, what was the kind of conception phase of that like? Um, so if I'm honest, the we've been doing improv for a little while. Had we done magic by
1: that point? I think we had. We'd done magic, which was a goes wrong show, which was technically the first ever goes wrong show. Um, that we'd done, and it was me, Henry Lewis, and Jono. But yeah, the conception of Murder for Christmas was because we wanted to make money, basically. We weren't making money. We wanted to make money out of being an actor. And uh, it was kind of scary to admit that, actually, but I think that that was why we did it. We were like, cool, improv doesn't really get any money. You can charge people five quid for a ticket. And even now, like when we do improv shows, we're probably more likely to do them for charity because people are still like, eh, I don't know if I want to pay for something that might be bad. So yeah, it was Henry Lewis had gone to this theatre called De Theatre in in Broadway, which is like a youth kind of theatre and um, community theatre. There's a guy called Michael Green who done a lot of stuff there, and he do, he's written a book in the art of course acting, which is basically kind of what we do, goes wrong stuff, it's clown stuff. And he's written loads of short plays that are like 20 minutes long and it's really funny, and there's a uh, like, for example, there's a, a really funny scene where the, loads of people are sat at a really long dinner table and halfway through the scene, their legs fall off. And the table lands on <laughs> the people sat underneath its legs. And there's loads of entrances and exits, but obviously no one could leave the table because if they do, it'll tip. So they play the whole scene as if they're leaving and trying to kind of leave and like, hide themselves. And it's just a very short, very silly, very funny scene. Um, and so Hen really liked that style of comedy and he'd written the um, the... Clock on the bromide, scene where everything falls off the wall and they have to hold Damn. it all up. And he'd written this short sketch. And so, him and Jono and Henry Shields uh, lived together at the time uh, and they wrote the whole thing in about a week the sort of first draft of it. And it was about 50 minutes long. It needed a lot of work and it was a bit dry and some of the scenes were a bit disconnected. And they brought it to us and we read it. And Hen was like, Look, we've got a bit of money left over from Edinburgh. We can try and uh, he had already done a show, Mercury Fur, at the old Red Lion and knew the artist director quite well. Um, and said, "Do you want to rehearse this play and try and put it on? We'll try and build it." Um, and we did, and it was it was kind of very 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 basic um, scenes. And I saw a recording of it recently. I think there's some one on the internet somewhere, like very first performance. And it's really slow and really dry and really kind of like nice and sort of funny, but it's not as hectic as it is now. And it was sort of born out of just a few ideas strung together with a loose narrative. And it was called The Murder Before Christmas because we wanted to do a show at Christmas because people go and see theatre at Christmas. And we wanted to kind of do an alternative kind of panto-y sort of thing. It wasn't a panto but like just a, a, a comedy show, like a clean comedy show that families can come and see and stuff.
0: And that's kind of where it started. I mean, people definitely know what they're
1: getting when they go to one of your shows. Yeah, we changed the name Play That Goes Wrong um, just because I think there was genuinely some confusion about what it was because I think we were we wanted to get a, an audience in that knew they were coming to see a comedy and we we genuinely had a few people come in that had bought tickets to see a murder mystery and then were very disappointed when so much stuff went wrong and couldn't quite realise why people were laughing and stuff like that and didn't realise why people were looking at the audience and and... And it, they were few and far between, but there were some genuine misunderstandings and people wanted their money back. And so I think we were like, okay, let's just call it the play that goes wrong. People know they're coming to see a comedy. And so actually we don't have to warn them up every show. It doesn't take them 15 minutes to realise that it's supposed to be going wrong. They can just laugh from the outset and enjoy the enjoy themselves. And we can do all the hard work. We don't expect them to do anything. We can We can tell the story and sell the jokes, but we don't have to kind of wait for them to catch up. Because there's some good jokes at the start, and if you're just sat there being like, what is this? <laughs> then you miss a lot of that
0: fun stuff. How long did you do it on uh, on the West End before you personally handed over, you know, your role to a new group of actors?
1: I think, I think we're on a nine-month contract, or it might have been a year.
0: So we went to the West End in
1: September, and then September of 2014 or 2015, and then we... Yeah, we ran through until the following year, and we extended after extended through the summer. And so, yeah, it was basically September till September, and that was a weird experience actually because we'd done obviously from the old Red through to Traff, then Edinburgh, then the tour, then the West End, and so we'd been kind of doing the play for nearly two years straight at that point. And I think um, yeah, it was it was two years before we handed it over to another cast. And we were quite heavily involved in the recast, and the audition process was very, very long. And now we're much less precious about it, I think, because it was such a big deal to hand over, because it was the only thing we had, and we didn't want anyone to mess it up. And then I actually realised that the more you kind of try and tighten your grip on it, and make sure you do enough rounds, and I just want to see that person one more time, and I want to see if they can, see if they can do it. And I ended up sort of saying to people like, "There, you know, there's no point in trying to see if." They can get exactly what you want in a, in a rehearsal because uh, in an audition because you have a rehearsal for that whole process. You just have to trust that you've made the right decision. And obviously now it's on all over the world, and so there are there are shows happening that I've n- I've never even seen the cast. So I think it's um, trusting. It's also trusting as well that m- the material that we've created is is good enough. I think that's the scary thing. You you assume it's always the actors, but actually if the the foundations are there and the direction is there, then the show will always be good.
0: Did you hand it over because you were told you had to, or was it because it was time so that you could create new work, or what was the thinking? Um, I think it
1: was... We were never told by the producers or anything like that, that we were always offered, and they were always happy for us to stay on if we wanted to, um, because the show was going so well, and at that point we'd just started to kind of sell out and make our money back. I think... We wanted to finish because I think we wanted to try and do Peter Pan and that Christmas anyway. But also I think you, you should change after that long. I think because the, the jokes stop becoming funny to you and the love for it goes. Because it is just repetition. And you go through a weird cycle of where you become so good at it. And I remember realising that the place where I was the least nervous and least worried and least engaged and least switched on in my entire life and in the whole world was for two hours every night on stage in front of 500 people and I could go through, at one point I remember going through a whole performance About no, the last half of the performance I came off stage and I said to John, I was like, did I get everything right then? And he was like, yeah, it was fine I was like, did I say all the lines right? He, yeah I was like, and all the jokes landed, he went, yeah, yeah and I was like, great, and I couldn't remember it at all and so, that was when alarm bells started ringing because I was like oh, I'm not invested in the show in the same way and I think there's this worry that you we're not grateful enough. We're not you're not you're not grateful for what you have. But I I don't begrudge any actor after doing something for two years straight to want to leave it, especially if it's a comedy, because you you do forget why things are funny. And I know it sounds weird, but like you tell a joke, you've told it, and we've done over a thousand performances. So you know there's a section where the lines loop around, uh, and it happens five times in each show. So those guys have said those lines five thousand times, and so. You go, you go mad. Henry Shields has screamed a ledger probably close to ten thousand times. So it's just kind of like, it's important that you you take time away from it. I think, and also we found as well like we we were going to keep people on and we tried to move understudies up with new cast and stuff like that. But I think. You should replace a cast every year in a farce. I think it's important that you do. I think for safety, because of the nature of the show, there's lots of physical stuff, and you're often responsible for somebody else's safety. So it's important that you have new people in to look after each other. And also, it just makes it fresh. It just keeps it fresh and keeps audiences engaged. There's nothing worse than going to see a comedy and saying, yeah, it's really good, but the cast look tired. They look look like they're ready to finish. And so I think regardless of how good or bad somebody is, you just replace everyone after a year. And some people come back after a few years and do the show again, and that's fine. But yeah, you th- I think you have to... I think if you're still enjoying a show after that long, you probably have an unhealthy relationship <laughs> with the show. Um, but some people do. I, th- I know in Broadway, people stay, stay in shows as long as they can. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I hate to see it as a as a job. <phone rings> Somebody's calling.
0: I've ever heard that phone ring before oh really
1: no oh that's exciting you should answer it and we should see who it is I'm not going to answer no it. no that's so weird who calls a landline yeah it would be like a a uh, one of those people saying you've been in an accident
0: oh that's you that's not my voice no oh is it not no nothing telemarketer there you go yeah
1: and after that brief hiatus the drama is over
0: yeah this is now the
1: podcast that goes wrong. Wow, so many different voices. That was fun. Um, that was fun. So yeah, I think I think it's uh, we 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 wanted to leave after a while, and and you're right, actually start start new projects. And the the dream is that the show can run without us, which it can now. And it's kind of scary releasing that. It's like letting go of a child. But I think um, now the show can run. It can be cast without us. We tend to help cast it just because it can get done a lot faster. We know what to look for and audiences tend to be weirdly slightly more um uh reassured if we've had a, 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 a hand in the casting process.
0: So when uh when JJ Abrams comes knocking and mm. brings the show over to Broadway, I guess that reignites a certain level of enthusiasm for you guys to then take the show and do it in a new environment.
1: Yeah, I think um I think the there's always um a level of enthusiasm with all of the shows we do. Um, that is permanent but it's also making sure that you uh, are always engaged with it in the same way and if you feel that you're not then it's it's time to go because somebody else will be i think when jj came to see the show he there was already talks with a kevin McCollum, who's the uh lead us producer and he's great he's done a lot of hard work for us and then it's hard transferring it to broadway because this is so much money involved it's crazy how expensive things are but when he came to see it and was just like, "Yeah, I love it. Let's let's get it over." And obviously for him, it's um it's quite a big step in terms of creatively because he's never had anything to do with theatre, uh, and he's I don't know how much money he put in, or, or but I imagine it was quite a big financial commitment, and also like uh, a kind of personal and a career commitment to put his name on on a on a Broadway show that may or may not be successful, and to be related to that in some way. But yeah, they they said. There was discussion because the equity rules in in Broadway are very strict. So you have to have very specific reasons why a foreign cast can come over and perform it. And part of the the stipulation was that we would do a maximum of six months um, and then leave, which I think was long enough for us anyway. But we got to live in New York, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. And so I think, yeah, he came to see it. And um, I wasn't too sure who he was, to be honest. I hadn't watched a lot of his stuff. And then I realised, and I sort of looked him up, and I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, no, I know exactly. Who he is he's done loads of really, really amazing things." And he was he was so kind and lovely. We got him in the show at one point. Um, he came to see us. Uh, he he was really sweet actually, because I think he kept going back to LA. But while we were we had a ten day tech period for, to help the cast and to help the crew get used to. it, cause Obviously, we knew the show, so it was for them to kind of learn it. And he was there pretty much every day, just watching. Uh, seeing how it was directed and uh, offering ideas and stuff. Some were good, some were bad. Uh, and uh, he kept going. I've got to go back. I've got to go to LA. And he he would leave and then literally arrive the day later. And he just he was. Like, I don't know what it is. I just can't. I can't stay away. And he watched like the first three or four shows and just was there watching the audience and just seeing kind of how it was created and watching us work with each other. And I think he's from an environment where he's in charge and he tells people what to do and. He's obviously a very creative man um, and he listens to everyone, but I think he never worked in an environment that was so ensemble-focused and everyone had an equal say. And stuff is done by a committee, which I think takes a long time, but it means you get a, a good result. And So, yeah, he was kind of weirdly obsessed with just how the show was being built and created. And he came back a few times uh, and watched the show from backstage and we would show him how to do uh, some of the backstage stuff and some of the, how the tricks worked and all that kind of stuff. And then at the top of Act 2, there's a bit where the curtain goes up and everybody kind of freezes because they're all putting everything away. The curtain goes back down, bounces straight back up, and everyone's in the correct position. And so we said to him, do you want to come on in that sequence? And he was just stood in the middle of the stage, barking <laughs> orders at everyone, froze, looked out, got a round of applause, the curtain went back in, and Brilliant. then he ran off. But there was we had to rehearse that because there's ladders and stuff swinging around. And we were just like, he was just like, will I be will I be okay? We're like, yeah, we're going to rehearse your track because otherwise you are going to get taken out with a ladder or a falling door or something. Um, so, yeah, he was... Um, and he's great. We went to... Uh, Charlie and I went to see him at his, um, his office in Bad Robot. And he was obviously very busy, but he, we had a tour around Bad Robot and stuff. And he's just been, like, really kind to us and really open. And we've been out for dinner with him and just chatted about his films and stuff. And what it's like to direct a big Hollywood movie and he's just like, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Yeah, It's weird, but it's fun.
0: It's weird. Mm. Even when he, even at, when you're at that level, there's there's still that kind of mystique, I guess about it. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of,
1: uh, I don't know what the word is. Actually. There's a lot of something surrounding him because of the Star Wars franchise and the shift and who's producing it and who's directing it. And, that that's a thing where like fans have such a strong opinion about it and and he just wants to do a good film i think i think he just wants to create good work and honor this this wonderful kind of saga um he doesn't really have a hidden agenda he just wants to be a good director and make a good film and like bad robot is such a wonderful place it's, it's a it's a toy shop for adults and people are allowed to create stuff there and and without risk of there's no deadlines or um it took me a while to kind of get used to it because Mischief has been built on a lot of kind of like very creative but very hard driven work and to go into this environment where people are allowed to just make stuff for the sake of making stuff and and just do cool things, just make music for no particular purpose other than just because you like this instrument or whatever. And so yeah, he he he's a real facilitator I think um, and he, he's very clear on what he wants but he's also very malleable and very open and very engaging and just very kind. I think the higher you get up the ladder you realize that the people that are successful are are kind and the people who are stuck in the middle or at the bottom are there not because they're not talented but because there's usually some kind of bitterness or 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 aggression uh from from down below and i think uh, it's really easy to perceive people in, at that level as sort of because they don't they don't have time for everyone because everybody knows who they are and it's hard but yeah he's he was he was wonderful to us very kind and obsessed with comedy now
0: (laughs) (laughs) what was it like i guess to to franchise the show then do do you have you franchised it in the kind of traditional sense where it's like you send it out into the world and it's kind of this is a show by numbers now or is there
1: Mm. that's kind of an ongoing thing actually i think um we're, we're kind of having that discussion and that sort of i want to say problem but it isn't really a problem it's it's uh, it's a discussion with bank robbery at the moment because we're moving the current cast finish at the end of this month and a new cast start end of february and that's a hard thing because you kind of you get actors in on the strengths of their performance um Play that goes wrong is kind of directed and acted by numbers now, but you you have to be malleable because different actors bring different things, and certainly actors different deliver certain jokes in different ways or or um, develop a character that's within within the the confines of the structure. But we have to be malleable and flexible in in terms of how we write stuff for them, and we try to keep everything the same because if you deviate too much, then the show isn't what it was originally, and, and that's that nobody enjoys that, I think. But also we have to allow for people, and actors especially, creativity. I think an environment that we've always tried to create with Mischief is you get in real trouble if you have di- actors directing other actors because you just have loads of subjective opinions about how each moment should work. But actors shouldn't be afraid to start creative conversations with other people. You know, another actor should be able to approach another actor and be like, I used to get a laugh on this joke. Why isn't it working? And that actor should feel confident to be like, yeah, you're doing a weird thing with your face or you're, you've are you slowed the line down or you're not really listening or you're speeding up. Um, and we should create an environment where actors can engage in that way. And actors can engage with directors in a way that is, they should be able to ask questions. Okay, I, I don't get this joke or or they should be able to, if they have another joke, always open to, to suggestions and so I think um, yeah that's that's it's just treading that line between here is the structure, here is how you have to perform but also let's explore other ideas and usually people come up with stuff that we have tried before and we've intentionally not put it in because of that failure from before and people are very respectful of that kind of stuff but yeah in terms of franchising it, it's it's trying to keep it True to how it started, that it's meant to be fun, I think it was Alan Akeborn that said you should never finish writing a farce, like you should always keep it updated um because it, it will go out of fashion so quickly um I don't know how forty towers has managed it. that's never gone out of fashion <laughs> uh but I think um, yeah, I think you should you know you should keep it should be ever changing and it should adapt to the cost that you have, so it sort of treads the line between very strict. And it also has to be very strict for safety, but very strict and also having a kind of small amount of creativity.
0: Well, it's now playing uh, on every continent except Antarctica. I believe I so. Correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or has played? I think um, we. Um,
1: yeah, maybe we should try and go down and do a performance. Uh, <laughs> and the play uh, that goes wrong on ice. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think we worked out when we were in New York that at one point it was playing. It was because it was in so many different time zones, it was technically playing 24 hours a day yeah, right. for about two days. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, so when, when one show closed, another one would have either already started or another one would be opening. Um, so there was a, a global play that goes around. Yeah. In theory, if you could fly from one country to the other and always see a performance, which would be really cool. That would be very cool.
0: Are you guys working on a new show
1: at the moment? So there's a couple of things in the pipeline. Some of the writers have uh, written stuff individually. Um, uh, Henry Lewis has written something which is really cool and Jono's done a few bits and I know Shields is always working on, on, on different things uh, and we've had a r- couple of read-throughs of those things but they're in very early stages and they're um, we can decide as a company whether or not we want to kind of pursue those things and a few lots actually to be honest everyone in the company has sort of written something and we've done read-throughs and stuff um, there's some TV projects that the guys are working on but it's hard to kind of say really because TV stuff takes so long and they had something that was was getting very close and now might not be and it's all kind of up in the air. It's hard to kind of say until you get something commissioned and you're filming. I think once you start filming something, then you can be like, cool, we're doing this new thing. Uh, And then even then, it may not ever make it to TV. So there's some TV stuff, possibly some more theatre stuff um, and uh, some, some stuff that I'm very excited about. But we have, again a lot of it isn't in our control we have to wait for other people
0: yeah well thanks so much for stopping by David. really, no, 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 really appreciate all. your time and your insights I, um, I end all of my podcasts with the same question which yeah. is what makes you silly what
1: makes me silly um, what makes you silly my uh, keeping in the theme of the interview my desire to fail it makes me silly
0: right because I think
1: it's a silly desire to have <laughs> <it.
0: laughs> Well, most people have a desire to succeed, so mm. you have a, a desire to fail. Yeah, if
1: I uh, eliminate, if I keep failing, I will eliminate all avenues of possible
0: failure. <laughs> so the only thing left will be success. Success, right. So every, it's the kind of extreme version of every no is one step closer to a yes. Yeah,
1: you know what's right, but knowing what's wrong. And I think, um, and also as well, like I think I've made a career out of failure, going on stage and failing every night. <laughs> uh, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. And I think... Uh, yeah, I have to uh have to honor that, I have to respect that. Yeah. And also I fall over for money.
0: That's pretty silly. That's pretty silly. Yeah.
1: I get like voluntarily hit in the face with things and
0: someone gives me a check at the end of every week. Mm. And that's my life. <laughs> and you dislocated your shoulder during a performance. <laughs>
1: yep, yeah, dislocated both of them. Um had a problem with one recently actually. Uh and uh, so I've had surgery on both of them now. Uh but the right one is more secure than left. left. Uh, but I have shallow joints, apparently, so uh, yeah. that happens. That's a thing. Mm. So yeah, it happened, uh, the The right one happened, one during a research and development for one of the tricks for the play that goes wrong, uh, at circus school. And the other two times, one happened in
0: Trafalgar
1: Studios. Henry Lewis threw me over a chaise long, Uh and I landed awkwardly, dissipated halfway through a show. And then the other one happened on the West End, um... Holding up a picture frame, it went up We had to stop the show. We had to stop the show. Mm. Yeah, to, right. uh, the second one, the one on the West End. We had to stop the show because uh, it was in the first act. And Rob, who played Trevor, was my first cover at the time. So Rob had to come on and finish the the show as Trevor, but in the part of Max. It was apparently it was very weird, but very right. funny. And then in the the trap was of the one hour performance so i went off and it was the end of the scene anyway and it was actually at that point the way it was written I'd, i would die at that point anyway um and didn't really have to come on and just did some backstage stuff so i went to hospital um and then rob came on to fill in as the dead body uh and then apparently at the end everyone took a bow clapped and da 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 then Rob came forward and made a speech and said, you might notice that Dave isn't taking a curtain call with us. Uh, he actually did injure himself throughout the show and has gone to hospital. He's completely fine, but um, we uh, we just wanted to let you guys know. Um, thanks very much for coming and safe journey home. And it got a big laugh and nobody left the theatre because they all thought it was part of the show uh, until the front of the house <laughs> had to come in and be like, no, 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 please leave. The show is now finished. Right. Um, and I remember getting into a cab in the interval actually of the West End one and a guy was outside having a, having a cigarette. And I was getting into a cab to go to hospital. And he sent a little beer to the theatre afterwards because he was laughing. Because he thought it was part of the show. One of the actors went off injured. And my I was like clutching my shoulder and getting into a cab and like <laughs> crying because I was in so much pain. Yeah. And uh, and he messaged us saying, I'm really sorry I was laughing at that actor. But I thought it was part of the show. Um, I'm just
0: so committed that you actually got in a cab. Yeah, maybe you thought we'd get in
1: a cab and then drive around the block and I'd get out and go back in the theatre or whatever. Um, but he was like, out. Oh, I didn't realise until the end when he didn't come out for the curtain call that something must have been wrong and so mm. he felt really bad that's pretty silly yeah that was very silly uh, but yeah I think um, yeah we get we've had a few injuries but though, that's probably the most like serious one I think yeah injuries being silly yeah it's pretty silly thanks yeah. so much Dave no worries thank
0: you for having me